This morning, the title of the message is The Cornerstone. It's going to be part one of a, of a two-week message. We'll finish it up uh, next week. But it's called The Cornerstone. Could be called Peace Amidst the Chaos. Could be called Conviction in an Age of Compromise. I want to talk about trusting in God when things don't seem to be going according to our plans. About having peace in Christ above all else. I was reading the news the other day, and the articles were going down the list. First, it talked about the growing threat from China and Russia and the United Nations. Talked about the continuing COVID crisis. How that at this point they just think it's just never going to go away. Maybe it'll get you know little little uh, symptoms will be less severe and it'll just be like a cold, but it's probably never going to go away now. And then they talk about monkeypox because that's a new thing. You ever see that show Jumanji where the kids open the box and you know the dinosaurs come out and then, like all this crazy stuff? It's like close the box, right? One thing after another after another. Talked about the stock market. First half of this year was the worst half of the year in 52 years on record. Talked about calls to change the Supreme Court. It doesn't matter what your politics is. The idea is if we don't like the rules, we just change the rules as the game goes along. Talks about calls for gun violence and gun reform. And doesn't matter what your views on any of those things are. Here's the general consensus, right? Things aren't getting better. So the new atheists and the materialists have always told us that human reason is all we needed, that we would figure it all out ourselves, that we don't need to invoke God, that our abilities and our capabilities and our wisdom and our brilliance were enough to solve the world's problems. In fact, you've probably heard people say, Christians, you know, religion causes wars. Just as a little historical side note, next time somebody tells you that. In the last 200 years alone, more people have been killed and suffered violence at the hands of overtly atheistic regimes than in all of human history combined before that. And all you have to do is look around to dispel the notion that we're going to make things better. Because all we're doing is making a mess. The best human reason, the best human abilities and efforts can do is what we have now. Things are not getting better. And if anybody has that view that scientism will lead to a better world, all the evidence shows the absolute opposite. Everything shows just to the contrary. And that fits very well within the Christian view of the world, within the Christian view of sinful humanity. We talked last week about the source of that when we talk about removing the mask. Because human beings are lost. And we are rebellious. We are self-centered. We are blind. And by nature, we are divisive. Theologically, we are free, but we're only free according to our nature. And that means left to ourself, if apart from God's grace, we would never choose him. That we would always choose against him. The Bible says we are enemies of God. We are blind, we are dying, but for God's grace in our lives. 
And so we are set free from ourselves and we're free now only through Christ to choose according to our nature, according to our new nature, against our base desires, against our inclinations. What sets humans apart from animals is that we are not just governed by instinct, but we can choose against instinct. We can choose to live for Christ. We can choose to consider others. I remember, you know, encountering Paul's letter to the Galatians where it said it is free, for freedom that Christ has set you free. And we're going to talk about the cornerstone. We're going to talk about making the, Jesus the cornerstone. But, you know, you can, you can talk about anything. You can talk about politics. You can talk about God, about the church, and people, you know, well, they like it. They don't like it. You know, everybody's got a view. But I've never run into anybody who said, hey, what do you think about freedom? And they've said, yeah, I'm not really a fan of freedom. I don't like that. Everybody loves freedom. Everybody wants to be free. It's just that we don't know what freedom is. There's a book by Oz Guinness. Oz Guinness is heir to the Guinness uh, Beer Fortune, and he's a Christian social commentator. And he wrote a book called A Free People's Suicide. And as an Englishman, he's observing that the greatest experiment the world has ever seen, that the American nation, not because Americans, not because our, we are different or better humans, but because the notion of real freedom is a different and better way to be, and he said that our misunderstanding of that freedom is leading to our own suicide, a free people's suicide, that we are self-destructing, that we are going the way of Rome, that our idea of freedom being our ability to serve self and to do whatever we want, to self-exalt and self-indulge is killing us, that the technology that was supposed to make our lives easier has enslaved us that we don't understand what Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. I remember reading that and be like, listen, there's a lot of things I don't understand about God. There's a lot of things I don't understand about Christianity. But I never in my life aligned freedom with Christianity. I mean, that doesn't go together. Isn't Christianity about rules, about guidelines? Isn't it anti-freedom? Well, only if you misunderstand what true freedom is. See, we are free, but we're only free according to our nature. And so unless Christ sets us free, we will always choose self. We're building kingdoms. We're just building our own kingdom. See, at the end of the day, and I love when C.S. Lewis talks about his conversion, and he said, I decided to let God be God. Because unless we allow God to be God, we are our own God. And we might not say it out loud, but we live like that. We all worship the idol of self. And the result is we run around and we're all competing little gods, building our own little kingdoms. One of the things you'll hear me repeat over and over again is that all we do here, I mean, people like to complicate things, and this is what we do. We endeavor to make Christ the center of our lives, and we want to help other people do the same thing. That is it. Every single one of us. I want to make Jesus the center of my life. I want to make him the cornerstone. We're going to talk about it. And I want, I want to help everybody else to do that because we need help and we need each other. 
And we tend to compartmentalize. So we have like our work lives, and then we have our church lives, and then we have our social lives. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ changes everything. It sets us free from self to be who God's created us to be, as we said the last couple of weeks, so we can remove the mask, so we can be real with one another. I've said this every time I've preached a wedding, but my wife said to me once, in order to love me the way I need to be loved, you have to love God more than me. In order to be the best spouse, the best parent, the best citizen, the best employee, we have to put God first. If not, we're, we're not using all what's available to us. I would rather have somebody teachable than have somebody able any day of the week. Because you can, you can always learn, you can always create ability, but the minute we're not teachable, the minute we say to God, I got this figured out, he goes, okay, I'm going to put you on that shelf, let me know. Let me know when you're no longer in charge. See, the gospel should radically transform everything. And you've heard me say over and over again that God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom compared to the world's standard. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. It is counterintuitive. It is counter-self-exalting. It is die to live, give to receive, serve to be great, and submit to be free. It's not about building your kingdom. It is about allowing him through you to build his. It's about living lives that bring glory to God alone. There's a t-shirt Jamie and I love, and it's by Count Zinzendorf, and it says, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Might sound a little morbid, but his point is like, look, live your life so God gets the glory, because at some point, no one's going to remember you. It's not about you. It's about him, and it's about them, but it's not about you. You are either part of the mission field, or you are a missionary, Everybody in this room, if you are a Christian, you're a missionary. You're called to be missionaries. Now, that doesn't mean that we are not ministering to one another, that we're not a community of Christ followers, that we are not learning from one another and receiving and giving. That's how that works. But that very much means that you are part of the process, that Christ should be the center of your life. Here's something convicting. For parents out there. And I read this and this was like tough, tough to hear. Your children are more likely to come to faith if you have absolutely no faith at all in your household than if you have a marginal faith. They are more likely to come to faith if they've never been exposed to anything than if they see you give lip service to the idea of faith. Because they'll listen to what you say. You can say, you listen to what I say, but they're going to watch what you do. And I'm not saying we're going to be perfect because we're not going to be perfect. That's not what I'm saying. But if we are nominally Christian, if it's like a checkbox, I have blue eyes, I vote this way, I'm a Christian. And it doesn't mean anything. And we come to church when it's not nice out or there's not a game on and we don't have something better to do. A kid's going to look at us and say, that's not... It's not a priority. In fact, statistically, churches with that liberal mindset, that's not, and I I say liberal in the sense of of just not centered on Christ, those churches are all shrinking because people want real truth. They don't want wishy-washy, it's about whatever you feel. 
And so that notion continues to, to fall away because you, if there's no power, there's no power. You can say, well, you know, it's my, my higher power is my, you know, dead grandmother or the tree outside or I'm going to, you know, I was somewhere and they, they, were, they, were sending, they were sending positive vibes to you. Either God is real and this is true. I remember my father telling me, I found out, you know, I went to a Catholic school nine years and I found out he's an atheist. I'm like, what are you, just trying to torture me? What's the... Kindergarten to eighth grade, nine years of parochial school. And he's like, I thought it'd be good for you. Well, if it's true, it's good for everybody. If it's not true, it's not good for anybody. The truth of Jesus. Truth is not an idea or a philosophy or a religion. It is a person. Jesus, John 14, 6 says, I am the way and the truth and the life, not a way No one comes to the Father but through me. In John 18, verse 36 through 38, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then in a sad yet profound statement, the Bible says, Pilate with truth literally standing in front of him. Truth couldn't have been any closer. Ask the object of truth the question, what is truth? Spiritual blindness. Pilate didn't recognize the truth standing before him. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, this says the Lord, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed, and he who believes in it will not be disturbed. Despite the economy and despite health crisis and wars and famines, the things that have been going on, Since the beginning of time, those who trust in the cornerstone will recognize a strength and a peace, a purpose and a meaning in this life. So this morning, we're going to look at truth in an age of relativism, conviction in an age of compromise, peace amidst the chaos. We're going to look at what it means to make Christ the cornerstone of our lives. Amen? Before we do that, take a moment and say hi to somebody near you. Father, we come here this morning celebrating true freedom, the the freedom we have in you freedom from self, freedom to serve one another in love, freedom to live for you. And so, Father, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear this morning? Would you soften hearts? Would you speak, minister to our spirits? Father, we are unable, we are obstinate and unwilling without your grace, your mercy in our lives, God. To accomplish anything. Apart from you, we can do nothing, God. But in you, but through you, 
Father, your church is the hope of the world. And so help us to stand firm on the truth revealed in Christ, the source, the author, the perfecter, our redeemer and deliverer. God, would you have your way in this place? In Jesus' name, amen. We see throughout Scripture this idea of a cornerstone is referred to. Acts, 4, chapter, uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other option. There's no other cornerstone. It's not a valid choice from a menu of choices. It's the God who created the heavens and the earth. 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul says, For no one can lay any foundation other than that which was laid, which is Jesus Christ. In masonry terms, the cornerstone is the foundation stone. It's the first stone. It's the stone by which every other stone will be set. It has to be perfect and perfectly placed because everything is going to be done according to that. And we said last week that in our lives, the enemy's crafty. And the enemy knows that we're guarding against, you know, things that are way off, right? So we, we know we're called to walk this way and we, we're not going to walk that way. We know that. And so we're going to focus on, you know, we know that to accomplish our own goals, we shouldn't manipulate and steal. We shouldn't cheat on our spouses. We shouldn't be liars. We know there's things we ought not to do because they're inherently evil. But see, what we're not on God against is the subtle, is the subtle differences. The, you know, two lines going this way, you know, we, we, we want to go this way. We're not going to go that way. We're going to guard against it. But we don't guard against just being slightly off in our, in our journey, right? So only it doesn't look like that much. God wants me here. I'm here. It's not a big deal. And then time goes on and time goes on and time goes on. And before you know it, you're so far away from that cornerstone that you don't even recognize it anymore. See, the, the problem oftentimes is that we're guiding against things that are inherently evil and God's going to use things that are not evil. In fact, God can use, I mean, the enemy's going to use things that are not evil. He's going to use things that are inherently good. It's just the priority we place makes them evil, makes them idols. So he's, maybe you're not, you're not going to church, you're not going to community group, whatever the things that nourish you. It's not like we're keeping a checkbox about attendances because the enemy knows that these things, that being in fellowship together, that reading the Bible, that praying, that worshiping him, that attending, these are all nourishing, life-giving things. And it doesn't matter the enemy if you don't come here because you're in the bar room or if you don't come here because you're playing whatever you're playing. As long as you don't come here, as long as he takes you away from that which's life-giving. And nourishing. See, the enemy wants our focus off of Jesus at all cost. And Tim Keller said, if God is not the cornerstone of your life, something else is. You are building your life according to something else. Your foundation is set against something else. And you know what? It's going to crumble. It's going to crumble. And I don't know about you, but builders know you can't just make adjustments. If the foundation's not set, if everything's not right, sometimes all you can do is tear everything down and start from scratch. 
See, if, if things are slightly off, if that cornerstone's slightly off, eventually you're either, and I said this last week, you're either really distracted or you're going to be really destru- it's destructive. It's distracting or it's destructive, but eventually it's going to ruin you. See, in my life, I had the benefit that my egregious sin, my addiction was so bad that the wheels came off. There was no pretending things were okay. That that, that cornerstone was, was so far off that I ended up in a program, it hurt my wife, it hurt my family, it hurt everybody I loved. And what it took was a group of people who loved Jesus, who decided to come around me and decided to pray for me. And I didn't just try to put the pieces back together. I had to demolish the whole thing. I had to set a new foundation and say, what did I build my life on? What was it all about? And I share with you before, I believe really the beginning of my faith journey the first time in my life, I, I really submitted to Christ. And I shared that I just prayed, and like, Lord, just put my life back together. I want my wife and my children and, you know, help me to get my, a good job again. And those aren't bad things. Those are great things. I mean, I thought God was going to be like, yeah, sure. But to me, those were ultimate things. I wanted to worship God insofar as it aligned with all my other things I wanted to do. It was like, I I liked the idea of the American dream, and I figured add eternal life to that. That's like a win-win. But the American dream is counter, contrary to the gospel. You don't add Jesus to your life. You make Jesus the center of your life. So if Christ isn't the cornerstone, something else is, and here's the thing. That doesn't mean you leave, you know, oh, you know, you beat yourself up. And conviction, God breaks us only to heal us, right? He shows us where we're wrong to redirect us, not to leave us in guilt and shame. That's not what God does. The enemy does that. God points out those areas we need to change so we can change them. So we shouldn't sit there and be like, ah, oh, you know, my cornerstone is this, and, you know, I'm, I'm so far off, I'm just going to go. I mean, the enemy wants you to do that. Breaks my heart that some of you might do that. God's saying, no, no, this, this word, receive this, make adjustments. You know, I can't help but think of, uh, you know, talking about cornerstones and talking about, you know, uh, adjusting to that one standard. When I was a little kid, my Boy Scout leader decided that me and my buddy, we were going to be the, the head, uh, you know, marchers for the flag. Now, I don't know why he thought that I would be a good person to do this. I was not a good person to do this. And we were little kids, but, you know, we're marching. I'm holding the flag. He's holding the flag. And every kid behind us is following us. So I'm trying to march, and I'm, I'm all over the place. And I'm looking at him, and, and he's all over the place. And then we're looking behind, and everybody else is all over the place. And we're, we're just, no, we got, we got no cornerstone. We got no standard. We got nothing we're paying attention to. Everybody's trying to find their own way. And it's a mess. Everybody's a mess. And that's kind of how life is, right? Everybody's doing their own thing. Everybody's looking around. Well, it looks like you're doing that, or, you know, and then. But every now and then we get in step. And then you get in step and you look and be like, well, we're actually doing this. Like there was some standard outside of ourselves. You ever, you ever fall into a place where you're just ministering to somebody? Where you're just, you know, talking to somebody and suddenly you realize, man, God is using me. Like everything just sort of seems to be working according to the way it's supposed to be. I've had times in my life where I've just, I've just got this overwhelming sense of, man, there is no place on earth. There is nothing I'd rather be doing than having this conversation with this person right now because I am in God's will. See, what happens is if we make 
Christ the cornerstone, and we continue to build on that, everything falls into place. It doesn't mean that it's going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. On the contrary, we're going to see that's almost never the case, but it does mean it's going to be good. It does mean we're going to be used of him. It does mean that no matter what's going on outside of us, that we can have the peace of Christ that comes from within us. It means we build our lives with him as the foundation. See, the problem is not in the pursuit of things. It's the priority of those things. And the enemy will stretch the truth. The enemy knows we're on God from things that we ought to be on God from, the big sins, but he just wants those, those little distractions, the little things, whatever it is. If you read uh, Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, probably one of his most deeply profound works, and the, the notion of that, C.S. Lewis wrote Chronicles of Narnia, and, uh, and, and he was an Oxford and Cambridge theologian, literary critic, bright guy. And the, the idea behind uh, screw tape letters is there's an uncle devil, and he's writing to his nephew devil, and he's trying to tell other, you know, the nephew devil how to distract us Christians. And so God's the enemy in that sense. And you know what he does? He says, first you want to keep them distracted. You want to keep them focused on each other instead of themselves. And then, and then you want to keep them, whatever you can do, keep their focus off the enemy, meaning God. In other words, just keep them distracted. It's the same playbook. It's the playbook the enemies use from the beginning. Lie, distract. Just whatever you do, don't let them see the truth. Don't let them build their life on the cornerstone. Because once you do that, everything changes. See, too often we place ourselves at the center. And the world's not going to tell you not to do that because everybody you know is doing the same thing. Be your own boss. Freedom is just, sex, uh, is just self-exaltation, is just self-indulgent. Freedom is I want to do whatever I want at all times that makes me happy. And everybody else is doing that too. And you know what? Nobody's happy. Everybody's competing. And nobody has peace. And you go from one thing to one thing to another thing. And we adopt our own set of values that are a combination of experiences, observations, what people have told us, views we've inherited. I always respect people, you know, you have a view, you don't have to agree with me. Just tell me why you think that way. But people are like, I don't know, I've always thought that way. That's the worst answer ever. Well, my father told me that, and then his father told him that. Also, bad answer. Think through things. Think through things. What is it that we are building our lives on? What is the cornerstone? How do we determine truth? What is the foundation of our lives built upon? Our own accomplishments, abilities. We said last week, everybody does that, and everybody feels insecure as a result. And everybody's still shameful and still hiding as a result. But the alternative is we build our lives on Christ. Matthew 7, verse 24, the two foundations. Therefore, everyone who hears these words and acts on them. I like that because I think sometimes we think Christianity is just hearing things and being able to repeat them. Or being able to put them on a t-shirt. Or be able to tell them everybody else knows things. And that's not true. That's not not true. We need to hear them and we need to repeat them and we need to tell other people. 
But the Pharisees didn't have the wrong theology. They didn't have the wrong view of God. They, they literally could recite entire books of the Bible. It wasn't information that was the problem. It was transformation. They had hard hearts. And churches are filled with people who can win at Bible trivia. But I don't know if they're friends with Jesus. And so Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words and acts on them. We're going to look at the relationship between faith and trust. Trust is an act of faith. It is living out our faith. It involves the will and our decisions. We are free to trust God, even when it's counterintuitive. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. And the stock market crashed, and COVID came, and there were wars, and people died, and there was violence. But our house was not built on a foundation of anything other than Jesus Christ. And those things affect us, and they hurt us, and they slam against us, but they do not shake our foundation because we are passing through, because we are meant for another place. The alternative is in verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them. The same scenario in both cases, people heard the truth. It wasn't from lack of hearing. Pilate had truth standing before him, explaining who he was. But in rebelliousness and in hardened of hearts, like the rich young ruler, we make a choice and we decide whatever it is, is better than God. Like we talked about last week in the garden, that doubt, Leads to distrust. Well, you know, maybe, you know, maybe freedom is found outside. Maybe Christianity is just a hindrance to me. Maybe there is something better. Maybe, maybe God's withholding. And so we're disobedient. We live lives of disobedience. Disobedience always has its foundation in distrust. Always. Because of course, if we recognize that what God wants is what's best for us, we'd follow it. It's just we somehow get you know, hoodwinked into thinking he doesn't want what's best for us. And, and whenever you think that way, whenever I think that way, all we have to do is look at the cross and look at what Jesus went through for you and me to be free. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. See, when my life blew up, it didn't just blow up a little bit. Great was the fall. And so, like I said last week, the the first step is to just walk in truth, to begin to make the right choices, to begin to do the right thing to stop and recognize what is really the cornerstone? What am I building my life on? What is the foundation? What is true to me? 
Not because other people say so, but because it is objectively true. Faith is not simply belief. It's belief that leads to trust. And we're going to talk about it, but faith isn't faith in faith. Faith isn't faith in outcomes. The power of our faith is the object of that faith. Faith is trusting in Jesus Christ and his promises because he's good and he's perfect and he's faithful. When we're not good and we're not perfect and we're not faithful. And again and again and again, he is. Hebrews 11 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. They didn't gain approval because they said they had faith. They didn't gain approval because they could define faith. They gained approval because when you looked at their life, they exercised faith. And most of the time against all odds. Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son, and he had faith that God would rise him up again. Look at Joseph's life. Look at Paul's life. Look at the lives of the apostles. They had faith. When everybody around him were like, yeah, that's crazy. Job had faith when his wife was like, really? Even now you have faith? Curse God. They had faith. They had a relationship with God that was so transforming that despite seeming evidence to the contrary, they lived with trust in him. That is what this, is, this means, for by it the men of old gained approval. Their faith was proven by the trust they exhibited in God. When things go wrong, where is our trust? See, faith, it has to begin with faith, but faith won't always lead to trust. We can know a lot of right things about God and not necessarily know God. Trust is something we do. It's something we act upon. It's only by God's grace that we can know it and act upon it. By act upon it, we must. I've said before when people say, like, what religion are you? I don't even like to answer that. Christian doesn't even mean anything. What is that? What does that mean? I'm a follower of Jesus. That's what I like to say. I'm a follower of Jesus. Because it indicates I'm following him. Faith comes first, but trust is never guaranteed. It's a willful choice. It's a deliberate action. It can grow out of your faith, but you have to exercise it. You get to walk in it. When I was working for Teen Challenge in the program, guys would always do the wrong thing. And be like, what are you, you listen to Eileen? Who are you listening to right now, Eileen? And like, who's Eileen? Eileen on my own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. In Hebrew, your heart isn't just an organ. That doesn't just mean emotion. It is the core of who you are. It's what makes you human. It involves your intellect. It involves your will. It involves your affection, your emotion. It is everything you are. Trust in the Lord with all of you. Not with one compartment, but with every fiber of your being. Trust. Exercise faith in him. Because he who promised is faithful. And the alternative is do not lean on your own understanding. When your best guess and your best estimate and your observations lead one way, and that goes against God, trust in God. So next time you, somebody says something, you can be like, you listen to Eileen? They'll be like, what? Share that with them. My pastor said, don't ever listen to Eileen. 
In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. In everything. Not in some things. Not just in your church life, but not in your work life. They're writing all kind of business books now. And they've come to this, this amazing, you know, this, I mean, it's amazing really what people can do. They've come to this brilliant conclusion that if you, if you focus on longer-term relationships, if you're trustworthy, if you treat people well, if you're, you know, if you're diligent, if you're a good steward, that your business will prosper. Crazy, right? It's almost like the principles of the one who created us transcend time and place. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families. In other words, leave what's familiar to you your country, leave the people who are familiar to you, your relatives, leave what you have, your father's house, that means leave your inheritance, leave your identity, and go to another place. And we kind of know the end of the story, so we're like, well, if God would have spoken to me and asked me to do that, then I would have done that too. Like, if God would tell me, like, don't seek your own comfort, and this, I got a better place for you, and I'm going to use you, then, oh, wait, yeah, no, he did to every single one of us, didn't he? See, it didn't make sense. God said, to a place I'll show you. I'd have been like, can you show me first? Because then we're like kind of more likely, but it's like, no, no, no. See, the thing about trust is as you, as you walk with God and as you trust him more and more, it becomes a little easier. It's never easy, but it becomes easier because it's relational. We, gotta, we always think of, you know, our relation. We don't always, but a lot of times you think of our relationship with God as like removed, but he's a relational God. And trust is built in relationships. So as we trust him with more and more, as we go through things with him and we see how faithful he is, we're gonna, it gets easier. I have a lot of flaws. My, ask my wife. You can, she'll tell you. But you know what? Whenever I'm facing something, whenever it seems overwhelming, I just look and go, we got this, right, Jesus? I mean, look what we've been through. We got Jesus, right? Look what we've been through. Like at some point, you just go, all right, well, I'm going to trust in you because I know that no matter, what I, no matter what it looks like, that no matter what I face, that you're not going to leave me or forsake me. That you, you say, you predict, in this world you will have trouble. Doesn't, he doesn't say we might have trouble. He says you will. In this world you will have trouble. Things are going to be tough. But you know what? Keep your eyes on me. And in me you, you can have peace. Leave your place. Leave your people. Leave your position. Leave your possessions. And I will bless you. Now we have to discern in our own lives what that calling looks like. I'm not saying go, Pastor said quit my job and leave. And that's not what I'm saying. Saying when God speaks, listen, because it's always easy to pick what's comfortable and what's familiar and miss the blessing. And throughout the Bible, when people moved in faith according to God's will, they were blessed. And the the big part of that blessing is their lives were a blessing to others, if not the whole part of that blessing. But we got to be willing to do that. We got to be willing to leave what's Familiar, to leave what's comfortable. 
The story's told about a young boy out in the middle of the country climbing around in some cliffs. Kind of dangerous. He's kind of high up. and His father's with him and he's kind of watching him. And, and all of a sudden, the young boy jumps off the rocks and says, hey, dad, catch me, after he jumped off the rocks. And so the father's kind of moving around and, you know, catches the kid and they fall on the ground. And he's catches his breath and he's trying to figure it out. And he's like, hey, what in the world possessed you to do that? Why would you do that? He said, well, because you're my dad. I knew you'd catch me. See, it's not our ability to navigate the rocks of life. It's trusting that he's our dad. That he can be trusted, that he's going to catch us. The young boy's whole assurance was based on the fact that his father was trustworthy. He could live his life fully because his father could be trusted. We have to be wise But if God's called you, I've said before, God's will will not take you to where his grace will not sustain you. I read that somewhere. God's will will never take you to where his grace won't sustain you. He's not going to bring you to something where you're not equipped. He's going to equip you as you go. You're just going to take a step of faith. I said when when this whole thing began, when, when Pastor Ken and I had a conversation, and he sat down and he told me how, you know, he was thinking of this. And, and I was praying. And the first thing I was praying to God, I'm like, I don't know. What's this going to look like five years from now? I don't know. I, I, you know, I got all these questions. And God's like, whoa, 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 slow your roll. What are you, five years? Like, I'm just asking you to take one step of faith. I'm asking you to take a step of faith into the unknown, to leave what's comfortable, to leave what's familiar. And then I went the next morning, and I, and I met with Ken, and the first thing he said before he even talked, he said, you know, I've been praying about it, and why don't we just agree to take the first step? Okay. Because if God's at the center, it's going to work out. It's not about what you want. It's not about what I want. It's about what he wants. That's what our lives are called to do, to be obedient to him. Next week, we're going to read Daniel chapter 3, and that's going to be our main text. But I want, to, I want to give us some context. I want to set the stage a little bit, and I would encourage you to read it. Read through Daniel 3, and next week in part 2, we're going to talk about it. But some things I want to point out ahead of time. How Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego trusted their Heavenly Father. Regardless of the outcome, they were willing to be thrown into a fiery pit and trust God. It's not about faith and outcomes. It's about faith in him. In fact, the key verse is God can deliver us and God will deliver us. But if he doesn't, he's still God and he's still good and we're still going to worship him. See, it's, it's easy to have faith in the outcomes that we want to happen. When I was in Teen Challenge... I remember a group of guys gathering around me and they were praying for my dad and they were well-intentioned, but they were misguided. And we we sat and and we prayed, you know, eight guys and prayed for my father to be healed of cancer. And then at the end, one of the guys looked at me and said, you know your dad's healed. I said, well, I'll let you know. And he goes, no, 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 you don't doubt. He's healed. And I said, I don't doubt that God can heal my father. I don't doubt that God does heal or has power to heal. I don't doubt that at all. I have 100% faith that that's the case. I'll let you know if he did. And if he didn't, he's still good, and he's still God, and he's still worthy of all my glory and honor and praise and affection. See, it's not a theological 
question. It's a pastoral care question. Because if your faith is only in outcomes, when you don't have the outcome you desired, you think either your faith or God is deficient, and neither one of those are true. You can look in the Bible where Paul says to Timothy, drink some wine for your stomach. You think they hadn't been praying about that? Paul's thorn in the flesh was all likelihood of physical ailment. Every one of us in this room is going to get older, and as we get older, we're going to get sick. Our hearing, our sight's going to go. It's part of the curse. God absolutely heals. He can absolutely supernatural heal. He still does that, but not always. But he's still God, and he's still good, and he still can be trusted. And we don't have faith in outcomes. We have faith in God. And the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will upend your faith if you think faith means God's going to always do things according to your plans or your desires. He's not. He's going to do them according to his. But what he will do is minister to your spirit and align your will with his if you listen, if you're teachable, if you're obedient. And in those moments, your faith will grow. When it doesn't make sense. When everybody around you is telling you to believe or think a certain way. If you have that sort of a relationship with God. If Christ is your cornerstone. If you've built your life on him. Then you're going to notice when things are slightly off. And with his help and with the word you're going to be able to readjust. This is a story that has enjoyed popularity since the earliest days of Christianity. During the persecution of the Romans, they found this painted in catacombs. It was an encouragement that despite circumstances that seemed overwhelming, that despite being you know, enslaved again, God's people, that he was faithful, that he was good, that he delivers. It's a sermon about a rugged faith and an uncompromising faithfulness to God. It's a sermon about convictions, about who we put our trust in, about how we choose to live. Are we willing to take a leap of faith, trusting our Father will catch us, or will we bend or bow to the idols of our culture, to materialism? Will we worship truth, or will we worship self and comfort and what's easy? Who is our ultimate authority? Who is our king? See, this story is a story many of us know well. And oftentimes in the Bible, you know, familiarity, sometimes we miss things when we're familiar with them. And you hear about Adam and Eve and Jonah and the whale. And, you know, you hear Noah's Ark. And, and you know, they say that the, most of the most car accidents happen when you're close to your house. Because the more familiar you get, you kind of get lazy. You don't really pay attention. You, get, you don't focus as much. Don't let that happen here. This isn't a fairy tale or a myth. This text will highlight Daniel's life in historical context. And you'll see that the message is as vital today as it was then. Conviction in the age of compromise. Standing for truth in a world that doesn't even believe that truth exists. So we'll set the stage. Only the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin remained in Canaan before the Babylonian captivity. Ten northern tribes called Israel had been taken into captivity about 722 B.C., which left only the two southern tribes called Judah. 
Judah was also taken into captivity, beginning first with an invasion by the Chaldean king, King Nebuchadnezzar. The word Chaldeans also refers to Babylonians. Judah wasn't completely destroyed, but we'll see it was looted extensively. The invasion was referred to as the first deportation, and King Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah. He took everything from the temple, and he deported the healthiest Hebrews back to Babylonia to be slaves, and Daniel, who's the author of our text, was one of those. The name Daniel means God is my judge. And so in Daniel we read, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Then he carried off the temple of his God in Babylonia and put the treasure in the house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Guys like Sam or Willie, I don't know where they went. The best of the best, right? You're saying, I'm going to pick the cream of the crop, and then I'm just going to, I'm going to, you know, brainwash them. I'm going to teach them to forget about everything they have learned and everything they know, and they're just, I'm just going to absorb them. I see their promise. I see their ability. And so we're just going to sort of rewrite what they think. And here's a little historical note. And this is probably going to be upsetting maybe to some of you. But when people say all the time, America, we want it to be a Christian nation, let me submit to you that historically, and you can, this isn't my opinion, when places are nominally Christian, they're spiritually dead. Which means that when to say I'm a Christian doesn't mean anything, then it doesn't mean anything. That's not to say that foundational principles are not Christian, that those objective truths don't stand. But what makes us great is not Americans are great. It's the notion of freedom, true freedom in Christ, that makes what we built great. And so throughout history, when you have a place where it doesn't mean anything, where everybody says they're a particular religion... You don't find spiritual life more. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It means it's marginal and nominal. Places where to say I'm a Christian means you can lose your life, you typically see it's vibrant. And you can look, you can see with the Muslim advance in the 6th and 7th centuries, you had areas that were 95% Christian, and then the conquering forces would come in, and in 150 years, they were 95% Muslim because it was a cultural faith. They adopted whatever views the faith gave. And so when it means something to be a Christian, that means when we live in a place where Christianity is counter, and it's always counter to any society, where it is counterintuitive, where, where we, are, we are resisting the cultural norm, the prevalence where it means something, there's value to that. And so what we're seeing here is exactly that kind of thinking where it was like, all right, just take the best of the best, and we're just going to make them think differently. And if your cornerstone isn't Christ, it's just what Christ can do for you, or it's just you believe in a certain way because your father told you and his father told you, and you, you don't really have any sense of relationship or identity in Christ, then you just the prevailing winds of culture will shift how you view the world. 
And the king was counting on that. And the kings here in this world and in this nation count on that. Let's just change the way everybody thinks. And I want to get on a side note, but if you would have thought 20, 30 years ago that some ideas that are now prevalent would be those ideas today, you, would, you wouldn't believe it. Because we're lost. We're depraved. And we're, we started off slightly askew, and now we're so far off, we don't even know where the cornerstone is. You know that Harvard University has a, has a stone that says truth, and that truth was the truth of Christ? I don't even know if the truth of Christ exists there anymore. I know it does, because he'll continue it. So that's what's happening here, is to teach them language, it says, and literature from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But the chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So I want to set the stage because sometimes we, we, we think, you know, Bible stories are divorced from reality. But this happened in a time and in a place. Our text is going to talk about how Daniel, he, he didn't want to take the food and wine. Now, think about this. As part of this training, as part of being in the, the elite in society, you got the king's food. That was the good food. It's got to be the best food, right? King, right from the king's table. So in the flesh, you'd think, yeah, I want what that, what that guy's having. Seems like every week we talk about food here. Last week, somebody said, Pastor Brian, I was inspired by your sermon. And then I was like, oh, that's cool. And then a little picture of Fruity Pebbles came up. On... <laughs> you had the best food. You could have been like, Daniel could have been like, this is great. This is a plus. We get this good eating. But he stopped and he was like, ah, you know, that's sacrifice to idols. But even that, probably kind of like, well, I mean, that's not even a real thing, so maybe. But then he's like, but you know, it definitely has blood and fat against the law of Moses. Can't compromise. So it wasn't rebellious for the sake of rebellion, because sometimes people just want to make noise to make noise. He was wise. He was wise like Paul on Mars Hill, which instead of saying, you're all heathens, you're all pagans, you're all going to hell, which would have been true, he's like, I see you have a monument to an unknown God. Let me take you from what you think you know about God to who God really is and what you need to know. Spiritual wisdom goes a long way, right? So instead, and I really, I don't like that this is in the Bible. You know, there's things in the Bible that upset a lot of people. This upsets me. So Daniel goes to the guard, and he was like, this is, I'm paraphrasing here, and he's like, look, you know, I know what you're trying to do with us, but the thing is, I mean, this food, we can't really eat this. This is, you know, against, you know, it's against our religion, right? This is not honoring to God. We're not, we can't really do that. The guy's like, look, I mean, I, I'd like to help you out. The thing is, like, all these other guys, they're going to be eating it. They're going to be tip-top shape, and we can't have you guys, like, all like, oh, I don't feel good. I'm hungry. You know, you just can't have that. So then Daniel's like, I hate it. Stay, I hate it. It's like, how about if we just have vegetables and water? I don't, I don't understand that. I got to go to the commentary and maybe they can explain this better. How about if we just have vegetables and water and we're going to be as healthy as the next crew? In other words, let me find a creative way. Like, let, let, let me... Let me find a way to, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand. I'm not going to bow down. I'm going to stand on my convictions. I'm never going to sin. And so that's the kind of guy Daniel was here. 
The text goes on to talk about that. And this is the same Daniel in the lion's den, right? This is these small decisions or seemingly small decisions he makes to not compromise that making God the cornerstone will continue to follow him as the decisions get bigger and bigger. Because who we decide to trust in the little things is who we're going to trust in the big things. Here's the place and setting of these events. About the time of Abraham, Genesis 11 says, men concentrated themselves in a city on the plain in Shinar. They intended not only to build a city, but a tower of bricks and stone with towers and mortar. The Bible says God frustrated their efforts by confusing their language and scattering them. And the place became known as Babel, later Babylon, which meant confusion. This is the land where this takes place. It's the same land where God called Abraham. Where he was told to leave Ur of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were people who lived in, in the southern Babylonia. Today it's the southern part of Iraq. Real time, real place. Abraham, the cradle of civilization, to go to an unknown and undesignated place where God was to bless him. You read it earlier, right? Trust in me, leave what you're familiar with, and go to another place, and you'll be blessed because your life will be a blessing to others. That is the call of every single person who follows Jesus. Centuries later, after countless warnings from God through the prophets, Israel's is taken captive and dispersed by Assyria. And then little more than a hundred years later, the southern kingdom of Judah was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, just as God foretold. And Daniel's carried off in about 605 BC. And in spite of this captivity by the Jews, Daniel enjoyed the highest offices in the state of Babylon, but he was ever true to the God of Israel. He didn't compromise for more power. He knew that no matter what, God would remain the center of his life. And we're going to see next week when we're reading Daniel chapter 3 what that looks like. But it's important to know where this took place. It's important to know the history. We don't live our lives in a vacuum. He was informed by his environment. But even taken to a new culture, even he could have looked and been like, this is going to be great. I mean, I got... This new thing here, this is, I'm like the cream of the crop. I got the best food, you know. But he's like, no, no, no. I'm gonna, God's the cornerstone. I'm not going to build my life on anything else. I'm not going to choose what's comfortable. I'm going to choose what's God-honoring. He lived in enemy territory, but his loyalty was to another. He was wise. He would not sin against God. We're going to have a communion together. You know, communion is a time where we remember what Christ has done, who he is, the price paid for our freedom. And it also says that we remember that he's going to come again. That no matter what we're going through, that this isn't the end of the story. And the very word communion is that fellowship with him, and it's that fellowship with one another. It's, it's remembering together as a community that God's the center, that he's the cornerstone, and that we endeavor together to continue to live that way. So it's a time of individual and collective reflection. It's a time realizing our faith is in him. He keeps his promises. He can be trusted. He'll come again. So as we prepare our hearts and minds as Willie comes and leads us in communion, would you consider 
If Jesus isn't the cornerstone of your life, whatever else is, make the, make the adjustments. Rebuild the whole house if you have to because it's only going to fall down. And the, the more that gets built, the greater the fall. Amen? Please stand on your feet.